Welcome to Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth, and we're in studio with J.D. Slatchert, who is an author, a writer, a philanthropist, and a speaker. And he's joining us from Paris, France, to be in studio with us. So thank you so much, J.D. I know it's awesome to be with you again. Um, yeah, yeah. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Um for making time while you're in Paris. How are you doing over there? Uh, Elizabeth, I'm loving it. It's a dream. Um, I've been having some incredible days uh, writing, walking around, wandering around Paris. Uh, I think it's my favorite city in the world. And uh, yeah, I feel incredibly fortunate to be here and have witnessed some, some just some like typical French uh, experiences like it was Bastille Day when I was here and I also Amazing. saw the Tour de France the other day so yeah it's been like <laughs> cool. a really eventful uh time and I still have more to go so I'm, I'm loving it and you're doing a writing sabbatical while you're over there yeah yeah I think um you know sort of the idea was that I kind of you know I live in Los Angeles uh full-time and although that's you know that's home and that's where I grew up uh it can kind of be sort of this like you know, just sort of loud, uh, always something going on, always someone visiting, always uh, distractions around me. And uh, Paris was sort of the idea like, hey, let's take a second to step out of the noisiness of Los Angeles and just kind of experience something totally different uh, and just have kind of slower days, um, which I've been able to accomplish. And I am uh, loving for sure. And the pace of life is just a bit different. So uh, it's, it's been amazing. And for that reason, and, you know, as a writer, and obviously this is a, this is a glowing example of it, right. I can be anywhere and still be in communication with, um, you know, the people I need to be back home. So I just thought, you know what, why not? And, uh, yeah, I've been loving it. So. That's amazing. And how long are you there for? Do you know? Yeah, forever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I plan on I plan on coming back to the U.S. Uh, probably by mid August. Um, so about yeah, you know, I'm about halfway through my trip here, and um, yeah, who knows? I might be back next summer too, and uh, going forward. But I love Paris, so I I, I I can guarantee you I won't be gone long. Um, when I come back, I'll I'll be coming back soon. But well, you're in the footsteps of many great writers while in Paris and the cafe life. And I just found, yeah. I just returned from uh, the northern part of yeah. Europe, right? Iceland, Denmark, and Sweden. Um, and I got to say, there's something about stepping out of your regular life and pace and routine to just kind of enliven the senses. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, I think as a... Uh, and those are great places too. And as we, as we mentioned, when we were speaking before the interview, uh, you know, I visited there as well. And those are like, Sweden is one of my favorite countries, I think in the world. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think as a writer personally, I, I aim to try and just be a great listener and there's no place better to listen than when you're out of the country and no one around you speaks totally. the same language you do. And you can just kind of observe. And I've gotten to really observe a lot here and I've taken a lot from that. Um, and uh, I mean, yeah, even just this morning, I was busy at a cafe working on some stuff and I, you know, totally got sidetracked just watching this like big group of like six or seven French men arguing and drinking espresso and, and just <laughs> having like this funny 
Well, I mean, you know, from what I could gather, like this funny argument, even though I had no idea what they were talking about, but just like their body language and their sort of demeanor uh, was it was incredibly sort of fascinating to me as a spectator. And it kind of it's, it's moments like that that just hit me out of nowhere. Like, wow, I'm really a far away from my normal. Yeah. Um, and I really value that. So I totally agree. And for our listeners, J.D., um, just give us a brief background. You've written two books to date, right? Moonflower mm-hmm. and Darling, You're Not Alone. Tell us a little yep. bit about that. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I wrote my first novel, Moonflower, um, when I was 21, uh, and it was published when I was 23. So that was in 2018. Um, and then my second novel, Darling, You're Not Alone, was published just this, this past year in November. Um, so those are the two novels I've written. Um, they're both, I think, pretty different. Mm-hmm. One is sort of a sort of like Moonflower is very much like a romance uh, coming of age novel that's kind of loosely based on my life and some, you know, real people in my life. And then Darling, You're Not Alone is like, was kind of my first real step into pure fiction uh, where that book was, you know, written and inspired by events that never really took place in my life. But I just had this idea of a book uh, and I wanted to write it. Um, So yeah, they're kind of two different projects, but I feel, uh, very, very uh, proud of both of their success and what they've done for my life. And um, I still have people who are reading both of them ongoing to this day. People I've met out here are, are reading Moonflower right now I've met. And it's pretty funny that all this, you know, all these years later, people are discovering my first stuff. And uh, I think I'm going to probably have that for the rest of my life, but it's a pretty weird feeling too. Totally. <laughs> and one can completely hope that that's the case. And um, yeah, maybe. yeah, for sure. Um, uh, there's some, we're live in studio and some people are popping in the window, waving at us. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. <laughs> hence the, hence the wave out for those, uh, people that might be watching the video, the, you know, the live video of this. Um, yeah. And I think one of the things that is, has made such an impression on me as you as an author and a writer and a philanthropist and a speaker is you're just, you're so heart centered and you are so committed to bringing the best of yourself forward, but also the best of the people around you forward. Um, And as we kind of explore this whole thought process of like, what is sovereignty and how do we step into our own sovereign nature and authenticity? um, I know we part of what you shared is like some of your becoming free is this latest experience of being over leaving the United States, being over in France and living and writing in Paris. It's giving you a different kind of creative freedom um, and a reset. Um, and you gave us a little bit of a glimpse from your experience this morning of just observing uh, those Frenchmen <laughs> eating espresso, you know, drinking espresso. And, yeah, um, yeah. But what they else? do that a lot. A lot of espresso is drank out here. I, and I'm definitely victim to it as well, just a brief aside. but <laughs> <laughs> Well, join the culture, right? Yeah, um, for sure. What else those is kept... Those little cups. Those little cups. They're beautiful. And the, the um, little cups, like I found even the, just the, the ceramics the, are beautiful. The plates. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I'm mm-hmm. obsessed with it. What else are you paying attention to over there that's like freeing you up in a way that um, maybe is leading to more inspiration for your work? Um, That's a great question, Elizabeth, and I'm so glad you asked that because, yeah, I think freeing is the exact sort of uh, ideology or sort of uh, experience I'm attempting to unearth with each day here. Um, 
but I think other ways I'm, I'm sort of attempting to do that. Obviously the listening is an important one. Um, and I think I would say another is like maybe just the full immersion into the culture I'm in. Um, and what I mean by that is like sort of, um, you know, not, I'm not like a huge museum or like a monument or sculpture person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's kind of not like how I like to go abroad. I almost like to just consistently go to the same locations just near me every single day. And like, I've gotten to know that like at this one cafe I go to, I know the guy who owns it, the bartender, the wait staff, the hostess. And I've been every day since I've been here. I've been here for three weeks. Amazing. Um, yeah. And like people, I have friends who have come and visited and they're like, I would love to see somewhere else, you know, <laughs> since I've, I've never been to Paris and I'm like, well, then go ahead, but I'm just going to keep eating and staying here. And uh, I don't know, I guess that's just a part of me that, uh, and I've done that in every country I've visited um, as just like a more of a way to, I guess, immerse myself and make myself feel like, Hey, I really live here. And these are the people I've met and the friends I've made. And um, I'd say that's one quality I've tried to, tried to maintain even here in Paris is that. Um, and then, you know, just kind of also, I would say wandering a lot, like not having a set schedule. And like, you know, when I'm in Los Angeles, there's such a routine I keep and I'm very disciplined with that from like the time I wake up to the, to my workout, to my writing time, to my you know interview time, whatever it is. But here I've, I've been going completely away and breaking my character for that. And it's been, that's been amazing too. And like discovering new places, just not based on an article I read online about the best cafes in Paris, but more like, Hey, I, I'm loving the, you know, the, the scene that this place looks like I'm going to walk in and order a coffee and just see what happens. And, um, yeah, I would say those are a few of the ways I've been trying to just break, break out of my routine, I guess, and have that freedom. Like you, like you said. Yeah, it's beautiful. And actually I, um, definitely resonate with like, I, I I do similar where I go to like the same place over and over and get to know the, when I was in Sweden, the hotel bartender, I would go and make tea there and he would like Uh give me all the fresh, like rosemary and mint and citrus to put in it. And just, yeah, I enjoy, it's that level of connection. I think that makes a place start to feel like you're a part of it and like your home. Um, Well, you kind of, like I kind of asked them like, what would, you know, what restaurants do you like or what, you know, because I mean, and not to take Paris is, in, I mean, it's insanely beautiful. And I don't, I don't mean to say the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower are not insanely beautiful monuments. Right. I've definitely been and I've definitely enjoyed it. Um, but there's so much more to Paris than just those two things. And I'm sure I'm sort of on a journey to find the other uh, really interesting stops. Um, and I think that's a good way to do it is to ask people who live here, like, hey, where would you go? Uh, if you had, you know, six weeks here or whatever. So totally. And one other thing, you know, that I find inspiring is sometimes to read authors from the region or writers yeah, who have yeah. written about the region. So yeah, for sure. Is there, tell, t- share with us, is there, what's the best book you've ever read? Oh my gosh. That's just, I mean, Ernest Hemingway might be 80% of the reason I'm here right now. I was going to um, say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm like the biggest Hemingway fan you'll meet. Me and- too. After I read uh, A Movable Feast, I, I pretty much decided I was coming to Paris as soon as possible. And uh, this was as soon as I could get here. So 
I, but I, I have to say my favorite book ever might be For Whom the Bell Tolls. Um, mm. I think that book is like so magnificent. And, I think Catherine's stunning in that book. Yeah. I mean, like I, I was trying to explain this to my little brother um, who did visit me and was here recently, uh, Clark Slackert, who's, uh, you know, adore him to death. Um, he's actually still a college athlete at UPenn. He's a great basketball player, but he came and visited. And I was explaining to him how sort of uh, – groundbreaking I think for whom the bell tolls is and I said there was even like a four-page segment that just made me want to like get the whole thing tattooed to my body I was just like so shaken by it um but that's like Hemingway right like I think you kind of go like 80 pages and sort of be confused or not sure like how much time has passed right and then suddenly he just hits you with like three or four lines that really you know can have that impact on you. And uh, I'm certainly a victim of that. It sounds like you are too. Totally. Those uh, are the and, two books and, I read when I was in Paris right out of college really? was For Whom the Bell oh, yeah. Tolls <laughs> and Movable Feast. Um, yeah. And I love it. Yeah. That, you're right. I feel like it was like 80 pages in on Movable Feast where it has those that like clarity. Yeah. Movable Feast is crazy. I mean, so that was actually published when he, after he passed. And, um, I thought that was interesting. Too, it is Catherine it that I'm remembering, right? That the name and movable feast or for yeah, whom the bells tolls. It's, that sounds familiar. Robert Jordan is the main character. I'm almost certain yeah. that's his name. Um, but it's been a while since I've read it. But me that too. book is insane. Forgive me it. if I make a mistake on the female protagonist in that book. Yeah, yeah. But... Well, and so there's so many. There's like so many places here in Paris that still exist that he Hemingway used to go to to write. And yeah, I've been spending my time at all of those pretty much. Well, and I think what, you know, doing immersing yourself in a new culture in a place where someone who had such a passion and talent for writing also put himself, right? Hemingway put himself in that environment, in that, in, in that scene. You get the energy of the environment that then suddenly rises up to support your craft. And so it's brilliant that you're placing yourself within that context, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Hemingway in A Movable Feast wrote that, you know, the, the title comes from the idea that even though he didn't live in Paris his whole life, he was there in his 20s for a few years. And the idea was that he could take that with him wherever he went and lived next. And he always had a part of Paris with him. And that's what the title of movable feast comes from is Mm -hmm. that it's a feast. You can start eating in one place and then bring with you and, and gain more from when you need it next. And, uh, I love that concept. I mean, I think that's the idea I'm trying to make, you know, uh, accomplish while I'm here is sort of grabbing on to some of the, the feast of Paris and bringing it with me wherever I go after this. So. It's beautiful. And I think that uh, we don't realize how much the elements of a location or geography informs our very nature, our very being, and can nourish and sustain us in ways that um, keep us curious and connected. So, um, J.D., we're going to return in a few minutes and talk more about you know, ambition and traveling and how great criticism can move us forward. This is Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth and J.D. Sletcher, and we'll return in a moment.
Welcome back to Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth, where we speak with conscious and curious thought leaders who are compassionate and finding ways to get themselves free. And we're in studio with J.D. Slackert. And I want to correct myself because at the beginning of the show, I mispronounced your name. So my apologies. Um, he, no worries. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> J.D. is with us um, from Paris. He's taking a sabbatical there. And J.D., can you talk about um, a little bit about how ambition is really important and the, the reason you encourage people to protect am- the ambition? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, ambition is such an important word and one that I find myself uh, using a lot when I'm speaking with anybody who wants to, you know, maybe write books, but also go into a new career or take some sort of leap. Um, Because, and you know, the reason I, I would say like, it's important to protect it would just be that you'll have plenty of people that will doubt maybe the ability you have um, and sort of maybe want to steer you a different direction, which I don't think it's done out of malice or like ill will, but it's more from a place of not understanding the passion you have for what you're doing. Um, And I I feel like I'm a big example of that. Like when I was writing my first book, Moonflower, I really didn't want to tell anybody I was writing a book because I I knew I would have so much skepticism, uh, you know, given that I'd never written anything before and I wasn't really the best student to begin with. Hmm. And uh, I didn't want to hear that. And so I protected that kind of from the world for that reason. And I, I didn't want, I wanted to kind of like wait until I had a book finished and then could like put it in someone's hands before I even said I'd written anything. Um, so did you, did you wait that long? I did. Yes, I did. Yeah. Wow. I didn't tell a single person for years I was writing it. Uh, and actually what's funny about that is, I noticed I was like starting to lose really good friends because they were so confused about what I was doing every single day. Um, and it got to the point where I actually did like have to have a heart to heart with my father. And he was like, you know what, JD, there's some of your best friends. You need to just tell them. Cause he knew I was writing a book, but he knew I hadn't shared that with anybody. Um, um, so it wasn't until like almost the very end that I let in just a few close friends. Um, and, uh, how yeah, did, I had to sort of sit them down. <laughs> how did they, so you were, you were in college when you were writing Moonflower, correct? Yeah. And yeah. you're at UC Santa Barbara playing basketball still? Yep. Which is like a full-time job in and of itself when you yep. play it a was, college sport. A yeah. And yeah. you're trying to write a book and stay in school and have a social yeah. life. And so when you sat your friends down to, you know, tell them like, and about your ambition and what you had been secretly working on how did they respond um yeah it was a really kind of it was one of probably the hardest things i'd ever done was sit them all down and just be super vulnerable with them um it was really scary for sure and i uh I think initially they were pretty shocked and that was sort of the last thing they expected (laughs) me to be telling them um and especially that it was the love story and you know it was kind of like this this gentle easing into it like so what actually happened was i did it on a tuesday evening Hmm. and we sort of adjourned this meeting as like okay 
why don't we make it every single Tuesday? We're going to continue to meet at JD's place and we're going to like talk about this. So it actually bridged into like a whole oh, kind wow. of social hour. And we actually still like for years kept that as like a standing meeting. And then when we all moved out of college and then left, we started getting on Zoom. So it was pretty sweet, actually. Oh, that's um, tender. So we, yeah, we called it our Tuesday meeting. And did that evolve? I mean, one, I imagine that supported you becoming more, living more in that gift of being an author and a writer and a speaker, but and a philanthropist. But did it also, I mean... Did it also give invitation to your friends to start showing up and maybe sharing some of their dreams and hopes and 100%, ambitions? 100%. I really think it did, um, which is, you know, why I think it was great advice by my dad to say, hey, like, you should just sit them down and they're your best friends. They'll understand. Like, you just need to be honest with them. And uh, I think from that moment, we've all maintained, you know, made us all closer um, in the end. And I think the irony in this is it's funny. We're talking about this today while I'm in Paris, like this whole Tuesday crew I'm referring to, they're all currently in the air headed here right now, like for to stay around me for like a few weeks. Oh, and, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. We're still obviously very close. So I've been like planning for them to get here and not, a lot of them have never been here. So it's going to be pretty funny to see them, but. Oh, that's amazing. That's, and um, then when did you let others in on like, you know, on this ambition after this initial, like you protected it for a long time. Right. They right. couldn't understand why you were disappearing for hours each day. Yeah. Then you yeah. let in a weeks small at a time. weeks yeah. at a time. Then you let in a small group, the Tuesday crew. And then when did you go to another layer? Because I think this is interesting. I don't think people realize that when you're germinating something that is a new vulnerable talent, how to nourish and protect and grow it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think to be honest with you, Elizabeth, and, and it's not like it was their fault. Um, it wasn't. And, but naturally what started to happen was people started to find out after I told this group, then like word, you know, hey, like JD's writing a book. This is what he's doing all the time. And I, I, I kind of worked to like, I guess this would be kind of a part of the negative was I worked hard to try to get ahead of that and meet people as quickly as I could. So they heard it from me rather than them feeling like they weren't included in my, you know, closed door group. Sure. Um, so I definitely had some people that were like offended by that. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we're, we're hoping for that type of, uh, ex explanation. Um, but I guess I've just sort of learned that that sort of comes with the territory of being creative and, mm -hmm. um, having that ambition, like we said, is, you know, sometimes you're going to rub people the wrong way. And I've certainly dealt with that as well. And, um, I've learned to, I've kind of become more comfortable with that than I was earlier in my career. Uh, cause it's not something you plan on doing, you know, you want everyone to like what you're up to, but, uh, I think that's kind of hard to do when you're attacking something that's very creative. For sure. And I think you, that also highlights this, um, almost like you have to surrender any ability to want to please other people during your creative and, you know, pursuits, because that almost. But that's a, a that's a learned thing for sure. Like I definitely at first was not good at that. And I think I let it eat at me in the beginning. And, you know, I was like, we, I mean, I was 23, I was so young and, um, I had no idea how the world I was. So I couldn't believe people would react to something negatively that I'd put so much love into. 
but mm-hmm. I've just come, I've come to realize that is certainly how things go sometimes and you can't take it personally. So. Totally. I went back to grad school for writing uh, about 23. And I remember doing my in grad school for MFA, we would share our work, right? And I didn't realize that not everyone's criticism actually was helpful. And that took me a good semester. It's like I would get all this feedback yeah. back and I would take all like their suggestions and try to implement it. And then the work was no longer mine, right? It didn't even right. have the, like right. the spine that I was building for it there. And I had to learn to be discerning of like, okay, I'm in this, you know, elective, uh, yeah, I'm in this core small group of people reading and some of those people actually have really good insight and some of them are just like checking the box and might not understand what I'm trying to develop here. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think, uh, and I, I think, I think a lot of it is unintentional too. And that's what I've tried to remind myself is like, they're not necessarily bad people. Or, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. It just kind of comes from a, a place maybe of a little bit, uh, insecurity or, uh, or, or they're just not good at explaining their thought. Um, but yeah, I mean, writing is very vulnerable. Maybe one of the most vulnerable things one can do. I mean, I, I know, you certainly can probably agree with that, with the writing totally. you've done. And, you know, I feel like with Moonflower, I was really putting myself fully on that page. And uh, the people that uh, didn't see it as that and, you know, had disagreement with, um, you know, but I do think the same is true for the exact total opposite side, right? Like I ended up having people that I would have never imagined would have taken something so seriously that I'd written that did and, and still do. And that's, you know, kind of the reward, risk reward for, that vulnerability and uh, yeah, people really show you who they are. And um, it's, I think anything that you can do in writing that evokes emotion, whether it's good or bad is, is kind of a mission accomplished in my head uh, mm-hmm. for writing. So if you, if you really rub someone the wrong way, that means you probably did a good job too. So that's totally true, JD. <laughs> um, and how, like when they were like, when you were disappearing and kind of protecting your ambition initially, did what did people think you were doing? Did they have any working hypotheses? Um, so I would say the most common, and it was you know, so it's funny. I mean, this, this is obviously like a very hilarious chapter of my life, no pun intended. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Right, like when I'm I'm just like coming out as a writer, um, but it was my college locker room. So my teammates would all uh, have like these theories about where I would go when I'd be like, you know, I'd tell them like, all right, I'll see you guys tomorrow at practice. And I knew that was like 24 hours away. And they would all have these like jokes about, oh, uh, he must have some girlfriend we don't know about, or (laughs) he's got to be like studying for some, you know, grad school test that he's going to, you know, he's going to tell us all he's going to, you know, he's going to Stanford next year. And like, they would throw out all types of just wild theories. Uh, But none none of them guessed book. I, I can tell you that for sure. So uh, it became like a running joke throughout my last season in college about what I was up to. That's really and they, a lot of them. Some of them just thought I slept a lot. They're like, you just must really sleep 15 hours a day. Cause you know, you don't leave your apartment. That's funny. And also like, you know, the fact that they thought it was like a relationship. I mean, it was a relationship oh, yeah. with yourself and, and yeah, the secretly, work on the page, yeah. but like, right. that's, that's hysterical. Um, and now as you, you know, you're, you, you've written two books and you're continuing 
to like nourish this ambition, how has that ambition shifted or changed or like, how do you protect it now? Yeah, it shifted a lot uh, more than I thought, actually, to be honest, like when I was first started writing, um, you know, I'm 28 now, so that would be seven years ago. Um, I, uh, I always kind of felt like each book would feel the same. And I think that's actually not true at all. Each one is like a totally different expression and sort of exercise to write it. Um, but I think the way I protect it is, is pretty, is pretty similar to how I always have, which is music. Uh, music is sort of like the thing that um, keeps my memories and my focus alive for each book. And I actually have specific music I listen to for each specific book I'm writing. Mm. And I'm a bit neurotic about it where I don't listen to the music I wrote the first book to or the second book to ever again. Like I won't touch those songs. Like you'll never and play them. All like... Like if I hear it in a cafe, I'm in, I have to get up and leave kind of thing. Like it's like, a, oh my uh, gosh, a that's series. funny. <laughs> yeah. So I have, but, and then like the same is true for like what I'm currently writing where that during that time, I'm only listening to that music. Um, and that sort of keeps me in the story and in the moment of what I'm trying to create. Um, but yeah, it's pretty funny because some of those songs, like I really loved and like, it's hard for me to just let them go completely. Uh, like one of them is Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. And I, I love had that, that song. song like, yeah, on repeat when I was writing Darling, You're Not Alone. And wow, every time I see that on my phone, I'm like, gosh, I'm so drawn to like just play it one more time. But yeah. But you don't. I don't. At least no. not yet. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Well, I'll come back in 10 years and tell you if I still haven't listened to Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. But. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, I'll stay tuned to see if uh, that holds because that's a pretty incredible song. Um, It really is. It really is. So are you, do you have an evolving playlist going now for stuff at the moment? I do. Yes, I do. Yeah. And I kind of have like the active, like, okay, this is what I'm writing to right now playlist. But then I've got like the one day this song will probably work great for a book I haven't come up with yet. So let's just bank this. Um, those are like the two playlists I work on, uh, actively. So where, tell us, um, where can our community of listeners find your work and find the two books that are already published? And I know you have a short that's also published. Yeah. 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 Uh, all, all of my books, Moonflower, Darling, You're Not Alone. Those are my two novels, um, both coming of age, both, uh, you know, sort of about, the progression of someone who goes from kind of childhood into manhood. Um, those are available on Amazon. And then my short story joining the choir invisible, which is a little, was a little bit different of an exercise for me. And one that I really enjoyed um, is more of a kind of an adult story and, and a little bit more dark and it's sort of uh, take on reality and life. But that's also available on Amazon as well. And all three of them can be purchased, as I said, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And you can also get them on my website, uh, www.jdwritesbooks.com, where there's so much more information about me and uh, the books I've written and interviews I've done. And you know, there's a documentary about me on there too. So there's a lot of stuff that people, if they're interested, they can check out. So That's awesome. Well, we're going to continue this conversation for sure as we move into our next segment. But this is Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth, and we're in studio with J.D. Slackard, who is an author, a philanthropist, and a speaker. 
and was joining us from Paris. Sovereignty with Elizabeth, and we're in studio with J.D. Slackert, who is an author, a speaker, a philanthropist, and he is in Paris on sabbatical. And we've been talking. That never to... gets old. That never gets old. Paris never loses its uh, right in Paris. Uh, I know we should almost yeah, take yeah. a pause there. In Paris, <laughs> writing on sabbatical, in you know, like full inspiration mode, being there. Yeah, for sure. Hundred percent. Um, and how travel can get us free, right? It can shake us up. It can open our senses, get us out of routines that, you know, some of our routines might be supportive and some might be old habits that need, are ready to yeah. be released. Um, so travel can free us. Ambition can free us, especially if we protect it and nourish it and let it support that inner voice that's leading us on a new pathway. But you also shared um, that criticism can be our greatest strength and lead us into greater freedom. Can you share how that's worked for you or what, you know, elaborate more on that? How does criticism, not everyone would say criticism as like a pathway for sovereignty or freedom. (laughs) Yeah. I think I have a bit of a different, uh, a relationship with criticism. Um, and I think a lot of that stems from my background as an athlete. Um, Hmm. growing up, I was sort of the undersized, allergy kid with red hair that was like the last kid on the bench and uh i had just this dying love for sports uh, and basketball specifically and i got critiqued a lot um and i don't think i ever was thought to do much with my sports trajectory and i think that's the reason i ended up playing you know at the highest level in division one basketball and having, you know, a great career at UC Santa Barbara and starting and earning my scholarship and, you know, that whole thing, that's a whole different chapter, but you know, how it relates to what we're talking but about. But it lays today, a foundation. Like, yeah. So I sort of took that into writing and then I noticed as a writer, how many of my colleagues uh, would get criticism and be so stunned and so shocked and unable to get up the next day uh, and write in it anymore when I would kind of receive that and feel like I've been I've been used to getting criticized and critiqued my whole life, and this is nothing. Like I don't have a coach screaming at me, "Get on the right. line right now!" Like <laughs> you know, I, I can deal with a bad review or a, anything like that because I can just like read it, and move on, and and forget about it. Um, but I think, and I'll rephrase that: you don't want to just forget about it. You want to sort of constructively take what maybe someone has said and find the positive in it and use that to better your craft. Yeah. Um, but then definitely move forward and not think too much about it. And I think, yeah, my, my relationship with failure and criticism is a bit different coming from a athletic background. And, um, I feel fortunate to bring that into my writing career. So, well, and I think that those two go hand in hand because I, I feel like, um, writing is such a physical activity and if you can have a strong foundation of moving your body in some way, it will also mm-hmm. move your writing. And what you're highlighting is that criticism doesn't have to um, break you down, but it actually can be an invitation into, okay, what, you know, kind of like a self-review, like what can I do better and what, or different, and what do I just need to like rinse and let go of? 
Yeah, and, and your relationship with it is is really crucial. Like, I think you could like tell me your relationship with criticism, and I can tell you how successful you'll be. Like, I think that's sort of the thing I look at with people. And um, yeah, I think it's I think it's vital. Um, but I think uh, unfortunately, it can lead to a lot of uh, people giving up on maybe something that they shouldn't too soon. And I guess you know, in the spirit of wanting to inspire and try and, 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 and be an example of someone that has received a lot of criticism and isn't going to just say, I haven't, um, I have, I have, I've had people tell me, you know, this book wasn't good, or I didn't enjoy this, this portion he wrote about that and have all these kind of ill things to say. Um, yet I've been able to push on and continue to try and create and write and feel like every day I'm just getting a little bit better. And I'm so excited to see where that takes me. Um, so I would say to people out there listening that have an idea of something they want to start, uh, is to not listen to the naysayers and just, you know, try and try and pursue it no matter what, um, because you will have criticism, especially in the beginning. Um, and you know, before the real support and fans come, you're not going to have anybody but yourself. So you got to really believe in that. And that inner voice too. I think, um, if the criticism hits that inner voice that might already be in a self-doubt state, that's where I see uh, people get, at least I'm curious your thought, but people might get stuck in the criticism versus in the like using it for inspiration to move yourself forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, it's, it's definitely easier said than done. I think it takes practice. It mm -hmm. takes remind, like you have to remind yourself of this daily. I mean, I'm not immune to it even now. Like, I think I still have to remind myself, but that's like, we're good friends and having a strong foundation. And then like, like we kind of began this episode, right? Like talking about stepping out and getting some space and like Paris for that reason has been a, a big part of that too. It's like, all right, let me just get away from the noise as I call it. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just focus on, on me and what I'm doing and, um, have that, have that literal separation of being halfway across the world. So it's, uh, uh, it's refreshing for sure. And so what are like, who gives you criticism now? I know like, I, it sounds like people might offer you feedback, whether you want it or not when you meet them based on like if they've read your books, but is there a smaller core group that you trust? And cause I also think, Oh like, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. For how, sure. how does that work for you? So my, my writing professor, who is the greatest man on earth, Macy Bernstein, um, I still communicate with him, if not weekly, like daily almost. Uh, he is my biggest critic. And uh, when we, I was his student at UC Santa Barbara, he used to give me the worst grades on all my papers I turned into him. Amazing. Um, but, <laughs> but he is my, like, he's my gold standard. And uh I, I'd be, I'd be nothing without him. Um, it wasn't, you know, he was actually, I mean, to give you a quick story Yeah. when I was writing my first book, Moonflower, as we've discussed, and I wasn't telling anybody about it. He was actually the first person I called up and asked if he'd read it. Um, cause I really knew he was so critical and such a hard, uh, eye that if he enjoyed it, I would know I had something. And if he didn't, I may have never even pursued publishing the book because uh, I, I, I didn't want to waste everyone's time. And mm. so I actually contacted him after four years of not speaking, after having him as a teacher and rekindled our, you know, 
very, at that time, minimal connection. And I asked him, I just said, hey, would you read this book I've written? And he was super hesitant at first and he really did not want to read it. Um, <laughs> but he, he ended up uh, reading it. And, and about three weeks later, he called me up and he said, JD, I think this is one of the best books I've ever read. Amazing. And from that moment on, I feel like I'm still riding the momentum of his, his words there. And now he's become one of my closest friends even. And um, he reads everything I write. He's the first person as always. And uh, I was emailing with him a few days ago. So yeah, he's, he's like my big critique that I trust. And obviously now I, you know, my agent, Alina Mitchell, uh, she's somebody that I trust, you know, as just as equally as much. And uh, I kind of have this core group now of people that I go to for that critique, uh, you know, in the early stages for sure. That's beautiful. And I think it highlights the importance of having good um, people around you who, you know, can love you and support your talent and craft and that you trust too. So, you know, when they're giving you honest feedback, like how much to listen. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And probably yeah. that's no. still a discernment. Like you might get some feedback from your professor, you, you know, and say like, mm, I'm still going to go with this, but I, yeah, we'll argue for sure. Yeah, uh, I was we'll argue say. over some some espressos and some uh, some salads. But he's uh, yeah, he's got it. I mean, he he. I think with him though, there's such a such a such a uh, man. I mean, such a respect and like he's so well read and he's so knowledgeable about literature and the craft that like his critique for me at least, it's like he's read so many stories and he knows dialogues so well. I know he's read more than me. So I know his ideas are so unique and uh, he's Irish. So he has like, he brings like a worldliness. I mean, there's just so much. Um, yeah. I mean, I love him. I wish, I wish he was here with us right now. I do <laughs> like, too. Like in this interview, you know, he'd be so funny. You gotta have, maybe, we, have we maybe, maybe the two of us, maybe you and him can, maybe can next join. Time. Yeah. Can join for a show if, if he's open he's, to it. He's got a lot of energy and he's an amazing writer himself. I've read some of his stuff too. And, uh, we really have a great relationship. So I forget the movie. Um, I think it maybe it's called Dead Poet Society. Have you yeah, seen that movie? I have. Mm -hmm. You know, you know Robin Williams' character, yep. uh, and and he's the teacher. Yep. And then the the student is Ethan Hawke, and he calls him Captain. Oh, captain, captain, my, my captain. captain. Yep. That's what I call my professor. I call him Captain. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, yeah, from that movie and that because he's like I, he's my old captain, my captain. I'm standing on the desk waving my book in the air for him. Sure. Uh, that's kind of who he is to me. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'd love to have you both on if you're open to it, returning cool. and, and talking about that relationship, because I think it is vital. Um, I think that the creative pursuit, whether it's writing or another avenue of creativity, whatever that is for someone is such an important and tender path. And it can, you can easily get swayed off of it if you don't have the right kind of, I guess I want to say like North star on it, you know, like the right compass and orientation. And for you, like it's, I love how your journey with sports um, kind of laid a foundation that then you could play off of into this pathway into your writing that's gotten you freer and freer and st steeped you more in your authenticity. It feels like, um, because your writing has even led you into your philanthropy. So give us some, a moment on right. that if you want. Yeah, sure, sure. And yeah, and I think 
just quickly before I say anything oh, yeah. on that, going, sure. going back to the, the, the sports side yeah. too, and the criticism, I was just getting like flashbacks here. Yeah. Um, it's just like, you know, you walk into Texas A&M where you got 30,000 fans in college station making fun of you for having red hair. It's like at that point, you, you can deal with any criticism, right? Like right? I, I've played in hostile environments as an athlete, and that makes being an author much seem much less uh, sort of intimidating, I guess, if you will. Um, but anyway. The, no, that's the fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, think I, like, it even fuels you, I would imagine, in that moment of being made fun of for red hair. Like, I'm going to prove <laughs> different. I mean, I, I know that's where I would go with it. I would be like, yeah. and, you know, I was just over in Europe with my second son who was playing soccer over there. And uh, it was definitely a more intense and at moments dirtier game than I'm used to yeah. in the States. Like what wasn't sure. being called and, you know, how they had to play. And then there was also a lot of cool connections. But, yeah. Well, I'm sure it's, it was good for him to have that experience. I mean, that's for sure. a really unique opportunity. For sure. Yeah. But yeah, the, the philanthropy is a huge part of what I do. Um, I work for several nonprofits, um, sort of on an on and off basis, but my heart is kind of a hundred percent there at all times. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, one of them being the Luke Strong Foundation, which is a nonprofit that supports children with sickle cell disease. And that connects and, to your Moonflower novel, correct? Yeah, exactly. Which my first book, Moonflower, is written and dedicated to Luke, uh, who was someone who was a fan of mine as an athlete that passed away from sickle cell disease. And um, yeah, that work for me is still very present and ongoing and always will be. And every year I actually go back to my high school where him and I met and I mm. give speeches about our relationship and I think now we're going on like six or seven years of me doing that. Um, That's beautiful. And yeah, it's uh, something that has no no signs of slowing down, and it's actually one of the reasons I am leaving Paris is to go back for that. Uh, and I've made that promise; I would come back for that. So I'll be back. That's awesome. And where, um, just in this last moment of the show, people remind us where people can find you. JD writes stuff. Yeah. For, if, Go. Yeah, if you're looking for all the Paris content in the world, come find me on Instagram at uh, JD underscore Slackert. And then you can also get me on Twitter at the same same uh, handle, JD underscore Slackert. And then for all things about my books and what I'm up to and kind of more writing in my blog, you can find that on JDWritesBooks.com. And then all my books are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold uh, around the world. So That's amazing. And Slackert is S L A J. C-H-E-R-T. That's right? right. All right. Got it. JD, thank you so much for taking time while you're in Paris, which is precious time <laughs> to be with us in studio with Exploring Sovereignty with Elizabeth, Exploring Pathways that Get Yourself Free, and with heart-centered thought leaders. And JD, you are definitely one of those. So thank you. Oh, pleasure is mine. Anywhere I'm in the world, I'm coming on. So you just let me know. Awesome. You're the best. Enjoy your dinner. It's dinner time there <laughs> and the movable feast. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>